0: Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast, about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of spin-off, piecework, and hand-woven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Merrow. Norman Kennedy is a national living treasure. Don't take my word for it. He's the recipient of the National Endowment for the Arts National Heritage Fellowship, which is the United States' highest honor for folk and traditional arts. Norman was recognized for both his singing and textile knowledge. He grew up singing with and learning from elders in northern Scotland, and he first visited the United States in 1965 to sing at the famous Newport Folk Festival. He served as master weaver for Colonial Williamsburg from 1967 through 1972, then founded the Marshfield School of Weaving in northern Vermont in 1976. In his world travels, Norman has learned from traditional textile makers, some among the last to practice their arts. He has also lectured, sung, and led walkings, sharing the knowledge of the old ways. Speaking to me in Colorado, from the 19th century Vermont barn that houses the weaving school, we face some sound challenges, but as you'll hear, Norman comes through loud and clear. He is a storyteller in the old fine tradition. One note. Kate Smith, the director of the Marshfield School of Weaving, provided technical assistance and a little commentary. So, Norman, how would you like me to introduce
1: you? Well, I belong Aberdeen. I don't come from the town of Aberdeen. I belong there. And my folk have been there in written history since the very, very early 1300s. And they're still there. Uh, quite a lot of Danish Viking blood in me because they settled there, of course, the, the Danes. Ruled half of what is now England, then the Norwegians further north. But my, I know the fields that my great-great grandfather ploughed, and there's a standing stone circle there. Aberdeenshire is littered with Neolithic stuff, just littered. So I was raised seeing that stuff. We were working-class people, you know. So I was out working in the fields by the time I was 11 at the potato harvest and the war was still going on. I mean, we got bombed and we got bombed out of our place. So I've seen war and I know my mother went hungry to make sure that we ate. But anyway, and my folk and my father's side were shipbuilders, very famous schooners, very famous. And then they sailed them. My father was three times in the world, at least several times to this country. A great grandfather, my mother's grandfather, uh, he died in Philadelphia. He went across. So I've had folk in this country at least since the 1700s. I think maybe in my mother's side, 1600s. So I'm just uh, a recent wave, as you might say. I literally do have distant family relatives. Here in Vermont. They came across for the the granite quarries. Nobody is a granite place, you see. So that's where I that's my roots are very strong here. And there were textile workers amongst them. And the, the factory, the cotton factories, lousy jobs, but they had to work at something, you know. And my mother said, my father's either grandfather or great grandfather was um Jacquard loom weaver, fine linen. Except there was a, a linen factory started in Aberdeen, a very unhealthy place for the poor lassies to, to work. But um so he, he he was starving and he had to go to sea. So but so when I started even thinking about making a little loom, they thought I was nuts. They really did because they had seen the poverty side of it, and I didn't. So I was near it, it was only two generations away from it, olden that I hear about it, but I had no idea it was my blood to do this stuff. And a great deal of, uh, you know, no, no help at all except for a very few old people who recognized what I was doing, and they would say, well, like my grandma used to say, if you're going to Dietrich, because we spoke old dialect, that's my, my native town. And anyway, uh, if you're going to do it, do it right or don't do it at all. And I said that to many such students. And haven't I heard them pass that on? Now, if you're going to do this, do it right or don't do it at all. I thought, grandma, your words <laughs> are still alive and well, you know? And it's made a difference. People have said that to me, you know. It, um, they were doing work, but it wasn't great. But um, i saying to them, Come on now, straighten up, you could do better than that. And they get upset about it, but then it really made a difference to them, you know? So that's, and then I started, I made a little, when I left school at 16, I was late leaving school. My folk all like at 13 and 14, went to work. But you know, when I was what younger. What made you decide to start a weaving school? I was working in the civil service because I left a really good job, safe job, which left me plenty of time to go around Britain singing. But they would every year they'd send me down to Edinburgh for training, but I spent most of my time in the museums there. None of my folk ever stepped into a museum, none of them. I love museums. and Neolithic stuff, loam weights. That's when I first saw loom weights for the warp weight loan. Um ancient spindle whorls, loads and loads. Folk were always losing their portals. But anyway, there's um, some beauties to right in Aberdeen, when I come from the fine grand stuff. But then look at the textiles that we seeing. People brought up, you know, people going abroad. Scotch folk have always had to go abroad, you know, to, to, to just make a living and just see other parts of the world. My father was three times in the world. Well, he was in, in India. Look at all the sarongs and that he'd seen. And another, his brother was a missionary in China. Look at the weaving there, and they told me about that. One time, I was, as I say, every third year I'd be sent to London. And look at the time I spent in the the Victorian Albert Museum. You see, I was weaving, as I say, and uh, small Kalims, uh, you, you know, tapestry woven. I mean, I I can weave it in our old style. Used to. My wife wouldn't do it now. Don't want to. Did it. But anyway, I'd go to the front desk, and of course, she knew I was scotching. And, and she says, And how can we help you? I says, Could I get the key to the carpet gallery? And why? I says, Well, I'm a weaver and spinner. Oh, very good. Because the museums belong to the public at home. So, you know, of course, Britain's still home to me. Anyway, I'd go in there, and here's all sorts of cultures: floor covered carpets, um, the, the gorgeous dragon carpets from China, and for, for putting around the pillars in the temples, the network floor nuts. So, and they were all hanging on things like pages in a book. And I could, I count how many hints <laughs> to the ancient things. I so I just and then I come to this country and the pre-Columbian stuff that I've seen in different places. i I've been, I've, I've been to every state and then in Mexico, north, south, east, and west. And I've watched the the, the women with and the young girls weaving, uh, spinning, and weaving with their, for their own clothes and then for sale on backstrap looms, lots of things. So. I just, as I say, my grandma said, you're a sponge for our knowledge, Lassie.
0: So what made you decide to start a weaving school?
1: I didn't want to start a weaving school. <laughs> I, I I've been working almost six years in Williamsburg, Virginia, a master weaver there. Far, far, I'm, I'm from the north. I'm from 500 miles further north than here, you know, uh, opposite uh, Norway and in, in Denmark, my folks are. So as I say, there's Danish Viking blood in me. So I'd been doing there and I was slowly getting sicker and sicker with colitis. A small, you know, like a 100 degrees, 102 degrees in the summer, and a very small uh, uh, weaving house, one, two, three, four looms, one out in the porch. In some days, 6,000 human beings going past. The smell of human beings was amazing, and it was getting me I lined up in the hospital with a colitis, and I thought, if I don't move, but of course, it was singing, it brought me to this country. I was invited to represent Scotland in 65, one from England, one from Ireland, one from Scotland, to show the roots of the American ballad singing tradition, but I was the only one that really came from a living ballad, and I knew some of these ballads by the time was 13, listen to street singers, I mean, this is stuff, it's my history. Songs from the 15th, songs that were known when Shakespeare was around And the language, my dialect wasn't all that different from that. So I understood that. Uh, Mike Seeger, Pete Seeger's half-brother, heard me, brought me across. And then one of the men, Ralph Rensler, who was uh, on the board he invited me the next year to come and help him start a business in cambridge massachusetts and at crafts business so we went down the first year i was here i was in appalachians and the ozarks uh louisiana up amongst uh, cajun speakers but the, the three years that i was at the school the last year I had French there, but I've never forgotten it because I learned French songs. So I still know that, and I can manage pretty much French, not Parisian French, Normandy French, different. So anyway, so, and I was amongst blues singers in the Mississippi Delta. And I mean, I saw the color bar in 1967, full strength, you know, and of course I didn't know any of that stuff. So that when I went to work in Williamsburg, the thing in, um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the business shut down because Ralph was asked to start the Smithsonian Festival on the Mall, which was huge. Well, I was up to my eyes in that immediately, you see. And then the first year I was here, I was in amongst Indian tribes at home. I saw Pueblo dancing, religious dancers. So I was I was inundated, but I had a good, strong culture of my own. So uh, I appreciate it. And I still do. I got. I was given a Navajo name in, in the 70s, you know, and I've been a lot of, and I can weave Navajo style, the big blanket I wore, spin and weave. So not only this stuff here, but other people's cultures are really soaked up, you know.
0: So what brought you to the U.S. the first time was singing. Um, and now I know you for spinning and weaving. But for you, those things aren't that far apart, are they? They're related.
1: Very much so, very much so, I mean, quite a lot, it's a big, now I was singing in front of 19,000, 12,000, but I said, I'll show you, give me, I'll take on a big wheel, walking back and forth, spinning and singing the ballads, and that folk loved it. They saw what these ballads were used for, it's repetitive work. You know, I've I've heard the women singing these old ballads. 1890 women gotten Heron. lousy lousy jobs singing modern stuff. And of course, I know modern stuff as well. And Mexican American. I want to go one sp- Spanish song, but plenty of Quebec songs, uh, Acadian songs, Cajun songs. You know, but and a lot of them but from. I saw the last of the people. Uh, living like 1800s, 1700s in Scotland, out in the country, no electricity, no running water in the house, having to do your business in a bucket, outside, you know, in a outhouse. I was used to that till I, was, till I come to this country. I never lived in a house till I came to this country with central heating or hot running water. It was great on Our tools, I built my looms, I built my own rooms at home, had to. I would go down to the the shore and pray to the old gods for a a storm. And the boats coming across from Scandinavia, they were loaded with cargo. On the deck, they had timber, deck cargo. In a storm, some of that would be torn up, and it it lined up, and I would pray to Thor. My name is Norman. My grandmother insisted I be called that. In Gaelic, it's Toramach, which means Thor's man. So he's my main man, you see, Thor. Anyway, Thursday is from Thor, Thursday. But anyway, uh, so I found nice pieces of timber and I built quite a large loom. And then I was weaving at home a tweed for my own folks, good quality tweed, spinning, she and the sheep doing a whole blessed thing, you know. My folk thought I was nuts. But all the older people whose young folk in the family weren't interested. But here I come along, and they say, and the Gaelic spectators, they would say to me, well, you garam," are you dyeing the blue, meaning indigo, with a mixture, which meant urine. I said, sure, sure. Okay, I was say, I was, I, I was, I, that, that one thing was the open sesame. I wasn't, I was working class like them. So the stuff they told me, and they didn't get let me get away with anything. Carden, they would stand over me and, and watch what I was doing Carden, which was invaluable, because I was the only one in the country. Even yet, when I go back there, oh, I've taught hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people here. But in Scotland, Canada, even once in, Eng- once in England. So uh, I've I got it at the last gasp. and the same in the Appalachians. Once I went down there into the Ozarks, I was at home because I knew how to run a still by the time I was fourteen. And because I was making wine when I was fourteen. I've just stopped i with a lot of wine and, and some good vodka that I made from the potatoes here years ago but so here's me going down to whiskey making country and saying it and maybe once i was here and then going down to concern myself oh was i one of the boys you know and the amount of people down there that that said you're scotch they didn't use scots like they do at home now they're they're so anglicized at home now Uh, you're scotch we're scotch too and they knew their people and so I was, it was open, says me. I just had to open my mouth, you know. It was different in other parts. Uh, uh, but down there, it was just one of the boys up here, too, somewhat. So, um, but it was the singing. I made much, much more money singing. And then in Williamsburg, I said I'd come down. I had been kind of got a hint that I wanted to go, and I went to, and they took me on right away and had a place to live, one of the the little kitchens down there. And uh, then um, I said to them, but I'm not going to stop going singing. It was the 70s, the late 60s, and the big festivals. I sang at all the big festivals here. And I made as much in a weekend as I would make in four or five weeks working there. And it was the same when I was here. I would go away teaching all around the country and singing singing, singing, each place I was teaching. So, and I'd come back with money. I wish I'd saved some of my life. <laughs> because I don't not know, but I've had a very, very rich life because of the singing and the weaving and the spinning and all the textile stuff.
0: So one of the places that singing and weaving come together is at a walking. Uh, can you tell me what that's like? And um, am I saying that right? Walking? walking?
1: Yeah, luo in Gaelic is luo but anyway, when wool cloth is woven, blankets or tweed, I, I did several type, types of tweed, heavy tweed and then really fine tweed. My folk and myself were dressed like lords and from the country, you know, and from the states of the country. But it's just woolen cloth. It's just interlaced threads, and it needs to be thickened and shrunk. All people say it's to set, the die, and that sort of stuff. They don't know what they're talking about. Two years ago, I was asked my dear friend of mine, uh, she's a professor across there, a uh, Gaelic speaker. Now, I'm not a native Gaelic speaker. It wasn't allowed. You were punished. I was punished in school for saying one word, kettle, instead of tickle, uh, because that was in the 1800s. The English said that all that stuff to be stamped to They made a good job of it, too. It's kind of, pardon me, coming back, but I was asked to go to the Outer Hebrides, To do a cultural tour in this uh, woman, a dear friend of mine, um, Margaret Bennett, and she had got two pieces of tweed, enough to do four walk. pardon me, four walkings, unshrunk tweed. It has to be, if you watch what you're doing, you can overdo it. In between every song, if you measure it to see how much is coming in, the first song it comes in fast. And uh, of course, I'll sing a Gaelic song because they ask me to sing a Gaelic song first. And some of them have heard the chorus, uh, they, can, they can pick it up. And then I'll sing ballads. Again, I bring in the, the ballads and folks sing their heads off. I have sung up in Quebec, uh, French, and they go, Auprès oh, de ma blonde, they go crazy, thumping away. But anyway, so, but no one alive, they said had ever seen a walking in maybe three generations. They said they knew one old woman. She was 101. And when she was a you know a very young woman, she sat in, of course you have to have muscles to do this. And the men did it up in Cape Breton, the men did it. So I did this up in Cape Breton. I would weave cloth here and we'd drive up to Cape Breton, tweed and blankets. And they had these men had done it in the 1940s. And then they stopped but they knew how to. Oh boy, did I get a welcome there. It was just great. So I was a bit of a freak, you see. It it takes freaks in this world to get things done, you know. I've said that more. You see, also, when I was in Williamsburg, um, I told them I would still go on singing, but they asked me would I do television work and radio work. I did so much television and radio work, I had to belong to AFTRA the American Federation of Radio and Television Artists. I mean, I I was singing, playing spoons one morning on the Today Show in New York with Hugh Downs. And Barbara Walters next to me getting that. You have to get makeup on because you would look like death, so white in the lights, you know. And Barbara Walters was doing her number next to me. Wow. So here's me playing spoons. He, he said to me, I saw you on, because uh, um, in, in movies, at festivals. He says, You were singing and playing the spoons. I said, Oh, but that was just because one of my mates had the spoons, and I just picked them up. And he says, Would you do it here? I said, Well, I don't have spoons. He said, By a lucky chance, coming through the kitchen today, he went empty his pocket and took out spoons. And here's me playing the spoons, saying, My cup in o'clock, look how how many millions saw that? It was hilarious, you know? But it never bothered me because, you know, a lot of famous singers had to get a bit stoned or a bit drunk because they, they were nervous. It never bothered me. I know I knew who I was, I knew my culture, I knew my songs, and and I got people singing. You know, people forget, performers. It, people, if they know the stuff, they went to sing. Having five, six thousand people joining in a chorus, the energy you get, you know, you have putting out energy, but if you get the, the people involved, the energy, and it's the same with, with, with folk, with the weaving and things like that. Once the catch on and they start, you get energy back from them, you see. I could be doing with some of that energy now.
0: Yeah, and it takes a lot of energy to do a walking. Uh, when I saw you do a walking, you walked wedding blankets. Um, can you describe how that goes?
1: a pair of blankets 11 yards to shrink into 10 it comes in four inches per yard uh, length i i would mark 40 inches for a yard for a finished yard when i was weaving you see and then um our blankets 45 and they would comment it with 41. you know you could you could push it further but they, they would be like too much felted so yeah and it, you get that off the loom, you, you um any darning to do, you do that. And then you take the two ends and make us sew them together. So I, I I go take the two together, I sew them across, and then I turn it over and come back so that there's three layers. That's the way that I did it. And then you put it into hot water and soap. Now the old people didn't have soap. Even the people here wouldn't have had much soap. They would have made soft soap with lye that they made with, with the, the ashes from the winter fire. And I've done all that sort of stuff too. Windows did all that sort of stuff. And if I wanted to do anything old fashioned, to say, oh, go ahead. It was great. So anyway, um, but in the old days, they would have had the um urine, mostly men's. Because there's stuff in women's insurance, you know. That's a fallacy. Well, Kate says it's a fallacy, but the only people wouldn't have believed that at all. They just didn't use the women's stuff. Young men, uh, I'll have to talk to Kate later with that. Young men and and some women, even here, I heard of a fella, he said, one of his great aunts at pea parties. She would have the, the doctors and the lawyers come in play cards and uh, she give them tea and cakes and things like that and some beer and then they save the good and make their water and she saved that you know you're best to let it lie for a while because there's a lot of solids in urine and people say oh it ferments now I've been fermenting wine since I was 14 I never saw fermentation it oxidizes though and it turns color gets darker. So the longer you keep it, the better. But I'd use that in dyeing too when I was dyeing stuff. But anyway, you would use soap if you had it. No, they would take the big pot that you used for scalded for making soap, for scalding hogs and things like that, and uh, render down the lard. Not the it down to stream. Fill it up with water, and then half water and half stale urine. Put a fire under it, and when it was almost boiling, when it was seething, then they put in their cloth and steer it about, steer it about, steer it about, and then take it up out of there, throw it right into the cold stream. If you did that with soap, which is an alkali, you're working with an acid, you see, working with an alkali, if you did that, boil that, it would felt like fury. It would be worse if you took it with the boiling. And put it into the cold water with the acid, no reaction, and that's who, And then when you're doing it by hand, we just wash it. It, it just. I've read uh, articles by women in this country doing this, and in the well-off women, it wasn't in their tradition. And they say, you know, let it let soak for twenty-four hours. Ten minutes is enough in the soapy water and then ring it out on the table, throw it on the table, and then you start pounding. Not a lot of water comes out of it, you know. Some people turn up with plastic room, but no, I never did that. And then you're measuring, and then, okay, another song, and then, oh, it needs another song, and I'd sing Gaelic and then English, and sometimes up for the French speakers, are French. but anyway, marching songs, you see. But uh, so... And the walking songs were made for this purpose. I know walking songs from the end of the 1500s. You can tell because of the heroes that the songs were made. And now th- these songs were made really, really extensive songs. And Gaelic is a hard language to because to, there's just more vocabulary. And uh, now these folks weren't allowed to read and write. That these women could make up the verses right there on the table. They were full of that stuff. There'd be a little left doing that, you know? And here's just all, ordinary housewives with all the skills that they had, you know?
0: So I saw a walking in a movie, uh, and there were like three or four women who were coming in and out, going back and forth, and it looked like they were dancing the mo- maypole or like doing the hokey pokey. Um, but that's not what a walking is, right?
1: No, no, no. It's on a, a table. Or they used to do it on wattles. You know what wattles are? Woven branches and things like that. And they did it with their feet. And, and they sing in and, and put in their feet 15, And actually, up in Cape Breton one time, a um, man said that to me. They used to do the castle work, the foot walking. But then uh, laterally, they did it on a, a board or just planks put the plank on two bottles and things like that, and they'd sit around it. It's really energetic work. But then the old people that I knew, the women, they had muscles. I mean, if I annoyed my mother, she could knock me down. They, they were working hard all the time, and they had muscles. Nowadays, it's not like that, but whatever. So, what else do you want to know?
0: So, you've got the fabric on the table, um, and the ends are sewn mm-hmm. together. Um, and you've got people sitting around the table and you're singing, but then then what happens? How does it go?
1: Yeah, you're moving it, you pound it, move it sunwise. Very, very unlucky to put against the sun. You're pounding it and passing it, pounding it and passing it. And you, I do with the old times start slow until everybody gets going. And then you can speed it up, you know, and you'll measure it, and you measure it with this four inches. So, oh, another song. No, you need another song yet. It all depends on the person who's woven it because you're working to what they need. And I usually have them to this side, next to my heart, you know. So, um, it was, but it was very ritualistic in the, the old days. And sometimes if it was for the cloth that the men were going to wear, out in the boats because they were going fishing out in the Atlantic in open boats, you know. So they needed stuff. They had no um, no waterproof stuff, bald skins, nothing like that. So they would have. Sometimes they would wear out at a team of women, and another team would come in. They'd soak it again. They put water over the the water and urine mixture. You know. Um, you know that Outlander business. That, did you ever watch the Outlander series? I haven't seen right. it. But they had a they had a, look, a walk in there, and a woman ran out and then come back with a bucket. She peed in the bucket. That was a lot of nonsense because not one of the women there had been to uh, I in the film it seen a real thing. But they were just making up folklore, making up folklore. All folklore had to be made up, all of it. So, and then once you get that finished, and then you got to pull it straight, and join, get it down to the other end, and then you start rolling it up on a board, a plank, with a plank and say that I've used for many, many yards. Smooth it, turn it, smooth it. There's songs there for that too. And then once it's finished, you set it up on it's in a bucket or something, or outside, and it just drains, you see. And then you open it up to, to dry. If it's rainy, which is a lot in Scotland, you would take a, a dry board and start rolling from the, the outside in and swap it back and forth two, three times. But if you didn't do that, the cloth, especially to go to the tailor, would be wrinkled and the tailor would have a hard job. Getting it. He'd have to wet it again and iron it smooth, you see? So that's because the people that I knew were doing this when they were younger were making tweed from their blankets for themselves, some tweed for themselves, but tweed to sell, especially on the mainland, that the the gentry, the well-off people would use when they were hunting deer and that in the hills because it was almost bulletproof, you know, it was waterproof almost. But anyway, um, so they had to get it really nice and tight the walking was essential they'd never did it to tartan what i'm talking about is woolen cloth tartan was made from longer fleece that was combed put up on the distaff the the jala no Koyka, the Koyka, and then spun with the, the distaff and spindle there's plenty piece places in the world that's never seen a spinning wheel yet you know People are still spinning because there's a lot of poor people and getting poorer too. So, anyway, uh, that's how the woolen cloth was finished. But the tartan was smooth, tight woven, not particularly warm, but more warm, windproof and waterproof. But the tweed was warm and the blankets were warm. So, that's the story of the walking.
0: So, how did you learn to walk cloth?
1: When I was doing it by myself, the, and, and doing blankets and that, I put it into that tub. You know the, the the name Walker, W-A-L-K-E-R, that's the, the, the trade that people came from. And you put it, and I've done this, I've shown people, you put in the bathtub, a small piece, and you tramp it, but you don't splash. You balance on your, 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 the balls of your feet and hit it with your heels. And then you turn it with your feet. Done it me have feet. Like, oh, yes, I've been time? Yeah.
0: So then you hadn't been part of a walking before you started leading them, is that right?
1: No, but I dared yeah, them. They told me, yeah, and they asked me, why? Because Gaelic, okay, why? We had to do that. Why do, you don't need to do that now? And as I say, it oh, was strange. Just as well, it was strange. Nobody else was picking it up. Honestly, nobody else. Amazing. But they are now, as I say, I'm showing them across the year, and me coming from the northeast, they kind of freaked out quietly that I was speaking their language, you know, because they couldn't speak mine. They couldn't talk to my dialect. Yep.
0: So it's really important to you to preserve what those old folks taught you.
1: It was important to me, but I had never any thought in Scotland of teaching anybody else. They would have told me to go and get lost. As I say, I was getting prizes at the Royal Highland Show in, uh, in Edinburgh for tweed. And this was a, a tweed weaving country. But you see, as I say, I was shearing the sheep and well, getting the dye in the wool, mixing the different colours for tweed, different colours, you know, and then sending it to the mill to get half to get carded into roving and I would spend behind and then half to uh, turn into the warp. That's was a common practice with the folk in the West Coast, you know. And I was in the West Coast when I was twenty. I did see a, young girls doing a walking when I was twenty out there, but they were just putting, you know, just little girl. You needed strong women to do that. And sometimes the men would go as I say help. But uh, and even then I thought, oh, this is freakish. But the second the 21, then I started going to the island of Barra. It's a dialect. The Catholic people there my folk weren't Catholic at all. But anyway, um, and then they started telling me stuff. Well you see, I was in places that had no electricity. So he had loads of time to sit and listen and they happened to be really interesting people. They would tell me stories in English because my Gaelic was not uh, s- strong enough, and, and even yet the, the complexities of the language. Um, so they were translating stories that they would never heard in English, but they were telling me in English, and I've still got in my head. I mean, that was that stuff never recorded. I have stuff in my head that's never been recorded. Long stories, not not jokes or anything, but traditional tales from maybe, oh. 1400s, one of them would be 1400s, you know, early. Viking times, when the Vikings were still there. So anyway, um, but I'd never thought of teaching anybody when I come to this country now. It was interesting, but to me, it was always the singing along with it, always. And I always made more money singing than teaching, or weaving.
0: Thanks so much to Kate Smith for her help. In future episodes, I'll speak with Norman in depth about spinning and weaving. Uh, but in the meantime, you can find his course, From Wool to Walking, and his video, Spin Cotton and Flex, on learn.longthreadmedia.com. Thank you for listening to the Longthread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.